Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we begin a new sermon series from the book of Matthew, we both begin a journey of anticipation in this season of Advent, and we set the stage for a long and deep study from this unlikely disciple. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, to get things started, here's Pastor Tierra. <laughs> so, if I've not yet met you, good morning. Good morning, South Harbor. Uh, if I've not yet met you, my name is Tierra. I am one of the pastors here at South, um, and I am excited that we are stepping into a new sermon series. Uh, This morning, we are marking the beginning of what will be a year-long exploration of uh, one of my favorite gospels, the gospel of Matthew. They're all my favorite gospel. I like them all for different reasons, but uh, the gospel of Matthew. Uh, It is the first um, book in the New Testament, uh, and it is written, we believe, by a guy named Matthew. Matthew if you recall, is one of the 12 disciples, the original 12 disciples of Jesus. Uh, Now, most scholars would place Matthew um, somewhere between the 70s and the 90s AD, uh, and there's there's some reasons for that. Um, One, something really, really, really uh, uh, intense, chaotic, big happens around 70 AD. Does anyone remember what that was? Say it a little bit louder. Yeah, temple is destroyed. Um, This is the second temple uh, of of the Jews, and it is destroyed in 70 AD. uh, There's a Jewish revolt. Um, The Romans, basically, in response to this revolt, um, basically ride into Jerusalem, completely sack the temple. Uh, This is the second time, if you remember the backstory, the second time that the temple has been destroyed. Uh, This is known as the second temple. The first temple um, was um, built by King Solomon. Anyone remember who King Solomon's dad was? David, remember that, it'll come back later. So uh, King Solomon built the first temple. It is absolutely immaculate. Uh, And that temple uh, was built somewhere around 987 B.C., Uh, Well, several centuries later, around 586 BC, the Babylonians invade the southern kingdom of Israel uh, and they exile the Jews and the the two tribes of the Jews that are still left in the southern kingdom and they destroy the temple. Uh, Decades later, decades later, when the Persians defeat the Babylonians, they are a little bit more gracious with God's people. They actually allow a remnant of them to return home and they do. And when they come back to their land, when they come back to their community, when they come back to Jerusalem, They see the ruins of the first temple and they decide to rebuild right there. They rebuild the temple on the ruins of the first temple. Uh, Now you're probably, and that's somewhere around 515 BC. So you're probably thinking, what difference does it make? Why do they keep rebuilding the temple? Obviously, this thing is prone to being sacked by empire after empire. Why build it? It's just a building. It doesn't matter anything. It's about the people of God, not the temple, right? Um, And yet, that's to kind of look at this through very modern eyes, very 21st century eyes, very Western um, American eyes. Uh, The reality for God's people, the reality pretty much for anyone in the ancient world uh, was that to destroy a temple was essentially to obliterate 
obliterate the identity of the people who worshiped and gathered in that temple. Um, It's the reason why empires would actually destroy temples. It's the reason why even now the Taliban will destroy synagogues and temples and and churches all over the place. Like they know that there's something, it's, it's hard to describe, there's no like psychology of it, but there's something about the identity of a nation or the identity of a group of people, um, the identity of a particular people who practice a particular faith, it is located in the space where they gather, in the space where they worship. Um, and so and so the Romans and then the Babylonians and all the other nations that destroy temples, they are communicating something to the people of God. But they're actually not a people, that they're not a nation, that they, that they don't belong anywhere, that they're basically religious nomads. And, and ultimately what they're communicating is that their God, in the very least, is weak in the face of the other gods. At most, their God isn't actually a God at all. And it happens again, all over again, in 70 AD. And once again, God's people are devastated. Once again, they're trying to figure out who they are after losing everything. When COVID first started, I think a number of us were in a similar place. It wasn't that anything was destroyed. I mean, physically, our school still existed. The church still existed. Um, the workplaces that we, that we commuted to every day still existed. The sports teams that we were part of still existed. Um, and yet, because everything shut down, everything completely stopped, um, all of us were kind of left wondering, like, how... Like, I, I don't exactly know what to do if I can't go to the gym at the same time every morning or if I can't go to school and, like, talk to my friends or if I can't play on the same sports team. Or I remember a friend of mine from across the road, her son got into the school that he'd been wanting to go to for years uh, out on the East Coast, and he spent the first year of school in her basement in her basement, trying to get to know classmates, trying to do coursework um, from her basement. He didn't even get to meet people in person until the second year, uh, the second year. And even then, it was kind of touch and go. It's been kind of touch and go for him. Uh, So a lot of us were asking questions. I remember when people were trying to figure out, like, who's essential? Like, who's an essential worker? Like, we didn't even know what that meant. We just knew we wanted to be essential, right? Somebody wants to be unessential or not essential. (laughs) Uh, And so a lot of us were asking some questions, not just about, like, how do I preserve my routine or how do I continue doing the things that I usually do, but also questions around how do I preserve my identity? How do I preserve my identity as a Christian when I can't gather for worship? How do I preserve my identity as an athlete when I can't compete, when I can't show up on the field? How do I preserve my identity as a professional or as a student? How do I preserve my identity when I can't go to the places I go to, connect with the people I connect to, be with the people I care about and love? How do I preserve my identity when I've been laid off from the job that I've been so invested in? How do you preserve your identity when the world as you know it shuts down or gets toppled or gets completely sacked? That's the question that a group of first century Jewish Christians are asking, and it's a palpable question for them, but not just first century Jewish Christians, Jewish, Jews in the first place, but also Jewish Christians who, who are somewhere between this place of we worship in the temple and we follow this guy named Christ and, and it's becoming a little bit more and more of a separate sect from the larger Jewish religion. Like, what do we do with this? Who are we? Where is our home? They are starting to feel a little bit like nomads, like homeless nomads, like social and religious and moral nomads. And so as Matthew listens to this debate and and people are searching for answers to this question, he sits down to write a story to a group of Jewish Christians who no longer know who they are. 
And the story is named after its author, Matthew. Uh, but it's not just a biography um, of Jesus's life. Uh, Matthew, the extended title is that it's a gospel. Uh, it's the gospel of Matthew. Uh, the Greek word for gospel is euangelion. It means good news. Uh, and so you can think of Matthew and all the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You can think of all these gospels, not only as biographies, but also as an account of how exactly is it that Jesus is good news. Uh, it's equal parts of both of those things. Now, if you are familiar with the story, and some of us are pretty familiar with the story, even if you're not familiar with the story, even if you've never read the story from beginning to end, you kind of know how it goes. Uh, we've read about it, we've, we've talked about it, we've watched movies about it. Like, culturally, you probably know how it goes. Like, it's the one where the guy comes back in the end, right? And so you're probably wondering, like, what makes this story, especially if it's so familiar to you, uh, that it's no longer fresh, that it no longer appears interesting or compelling to you, like, what exactly makes this story so compelling that for Four different people write the story down. I mean, like chapters and chapters and chapters. Like, how many of you have an idea that is so interesting that you are willing to, in addition to knowing that there are three other people who've written a story, like you want to set out to also write the story, right? Like, someone actually invested the time to write the story down. So, why is it so compelling? Why is it worth retelling? four times, why is it worth retelling, not just those four times, but multiple times to multiple people for multiple decades, multiple centuries, until the point where you and I are sitting in the same room because someone retold the story to us in their words, in their deeds, like someone retold the story. What makes the story compelling? What makes it worth telling? What makes it interesting? Like, is it as, is it as interesting as like Matthew McConaughey's biography or, or maybe Will Smith's latest biography where he like beatboxes? Like, does Jesus beatbox? Does, is that what makes it interesting? Um, and the reality is, the reality is it also starts off in a pretty interesting way. Uh, in fact, Matthew begins the very first words of his, of his story of Jesus' life. Uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, because we ran out of names, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nishan, and Nishan, the father of Salmon, because I can't pronounce the O in Salmon, uh, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and he goes on like this for literally a whole nother page. Just be thankful we're not doing Chronicles. There's like nine chapters of this in Chronicles. So, uh, <laughs> so why on earth does Matthew begin this rich, beautiful, compelling story that changes the world, that changes a community, that changes us and our families' trajectory forever? Why does Matthew begin this story with a list of names that are hard to pronounce? And isn't that different from the way that we usually encounter stories? Like, like the Michael Bay version of this, like the guy who directed the Transformers, probably would have began with like a shootout or, previous slide, shootout or maybe, I don't know, like a, an explosion of several sorts. And yet Matthew begins this story with a list of names. But as it turns out, it's not just a list of names. Uh, and here's what I mean by that. Um, there is a guy, um, his name is, actually, does anyone know who this is? Next slide. Anyone remember who he is? 
My guess is probably not. You're probably more familiar with his work. Uh, his name is Peter Doctor. Uh, he is a nerdy, whimsical, or was at least a nerdy, whimsical film student. And uh, when he graduated from film school, he had two options in front of him. He could become one of the writers of The Simpsons, um, or he could join a little startup called Pixar. Uh, he chose the latter option today. He is the creative director of Pixar. Uh, which, sorry, chief creative officer for Pixar, which sounds like a really, really awesome job. Uh, now, you might not remember his name, but you remember things that he's either directed or co-written or both, um, like Toy Story uh, or Up. Um, how many of you have seen Up? A few people, yeah, it's like literally one of my favorite movies. Uh, Monsters, Inc., uh, he also did Inside Out. Um, Inside Out is also one of my favorites. How many of you have seen Inside Out? Yeah, nice. It's all about the feels, which I don't usually like, but they do a great job. <laughs> and then there's Pixar's Soul. Uh, how many of you have seen Soul? It's the super, super recent, yeah. It just started streaming, I think, earlier this year. Uh, so he has actually won three Academy Awards uh, for his work at Pixar um, on the movies that are, three of which are, are we, we've just reviewed. Uh, but one of the things I find interesting about Peter Doctor is that Peter Doctor actually credits his faith for teaching him how to tell a good story. Uh, Peter Doctor is a Presbyterian, a lifelong Presbyterian, um, family, Presbyterian family. Um, Presbyterians are like our cousins, like, like denominationally. Uh, he belongs to, still belongs to a church in California uh, where he spent most of his adult life. And uh, he credits that faith and his family of faith for teaching him stories about love and hope and dreams and pain and loss and joy and renewal. Uh, he credits his family of faith for teaching him how to care for people, like all people. Um, and as, if, as you remember, like if you can remember the movies that you've seen from Pixar, they are movies that resonate with us because they capture something of hope and love and dreams and pain and loss and joy and renewal. Um, and those are, those are the kinds of stories that Peter loves to tell uh, because he was steeped in those stories his entire life. His entire childhood shaped his imagination to be able to tell the kind of stories that he tells. So a couple thousand years ago, a guy named Matthew penned a story, and you can kind of think of Matthew as a precursor to a guy like Peter Doctor and other people like Peter Doctor. Um, and as it turns out, every word, every single word of Matthew's gospel um, is a story about love and hope and dreams and pain and loss and joy and caring for people and this idea of renewal, though Matthew would probably say redemption. But not just the words of those really familiar stories uh, that we all know so well that we could probably tell them without looking at the page. I mean, not even just the words of those more action-packed stories um, that really excite us as we're reading the words, uh, but even the words of painfully long, hard-to-pronounce lists of names at the beginning of our text for today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, which begins this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So I'm gonna pause there. Uh, Matthew begins his account of how Jesus Christ is good news with a, this word he uses, this genealogy. A genealogy just means genesis or beginning. Um, and it's, think of it kind of like, um, like an ancient ancestry.com. Like how many of you have like used ancestry to like track your family? 
only, okay, a couple of folks. I have not done it yet. I have the box. I just don't feel like spitting in the tube, but uh, <laughs> maybe they don't do that part anymore, but <laughs> it's a really old box. Um, but I've, families of family has done this since I know a few things from the details that they share with me. Uh, for instance, I am the third cousin of Stevie Wonder, but by marriage. Um, so that doesn't quite show up, but it is fun to tell. Uh, and apparently, despite the fact that I used to tell people this when I was a kid growing up, I am not related to Justice Thurgood Marshall. Uh, so... <laughs> So genealogies are kind of like that. They are this like ancient version of Ancestry.com. Uh, they've got these extensive records, especially for a couple of the family lines um, of God's people that they kept in the temple. Um, other people kept them in other places so that they can kind of remember. You find genealogies in Genesis. You find them in Kings, Chronicles, like all throughout the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, there are two, uh, one in Matthew's gospel and then the, and the next is in Luke's gospel. Uh, but it's, it's only kind of like only kind of like Ancestry.com, uh, because it's not exactly just a list of names. In fact, when you look at the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, you'll notice that they're slightly different. They're slightly different. Uh, now, are these just errors? Like, are, are they just like making mistakes? Are these typos and they just don't have like, like spell check? Like, what's the deal? Um, scholars would say that the differences between even Matthew and Luke's Gospels are precisely because they're telling the story in a very unique way. And the genealogy is like a way of helping them learn, helping them tell a story. Uh, you can think of a genealogy in that case, um, kind, of like, um, kind of like that episode of The Office, like Andy's play, when like Daryl like shushes Michael. Uh, like you gotta listen to the beginning. The genealogy is the beginning. You gotta listen to the beginning so that you know the themes when they come back later. Matthew has some theological themes that he's trying to lay out, and he embeds them in the genealogy, in the genealogy, so that when it comes up over and over again, it's going to be like the through line, like multiple through lines throughout the text. You will remember where it came from. You'll kind of remember it. You'll be able to track it when you see it. So, Matthew's genealogy is kind of like that. What are those theological themes? Well, the first clue is actually in that very first verse. Uh, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Uh, now, Matthew situates Jesus within the, within the family of Abraham, within the family of David, uh, but we are gonna go to Abraham first. Uh, Abraham, we first encounter him in Genesis 11. Uh, Genesis 11, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and his father, uh, Tira, and his nephew, Lot, uh, they set out together, and they end up kind of setting up camp. Um, they, they don't really have land of their, their own. They kind of set up camp in Haran. Uh, let me hear you say Haran. So they are in the land of Haran, and it's at that place where Abraham's father dies. Um, Abraham's father dies, um, and at this point, I mean, you kind of have to feel for these people because they're basically nomads. Like, they have no land. Uh, they have no home. Like, they, they don't belong to anyone, and especially now that Abraham's father has passed away. It's literally just Abraham and Sarah, uh, just the two of them and their nephew Lot. Eventually, they go their separate ways too. Uh, but then in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham in Haran and he says to him, uh, go from your country, your people, and your father's household uh, to the land that I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing um, and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. 
And so the, God promises Abraham and Sarah that he will bless them, uh, that he will place them in the land that he will show them, that their family will be a blessing to you, all the other nations of the world. Um, and what's surprising, what's surprising uh, for Abraham and Sarah once like the shock of this ordeal wears off is that they don't actually have offspring which kind of makes it a challenge for your offspring to inherit land. It kind of makes it a challenge for your offspring to be the conduit for God's blessing of the world. Abraham and Sarah do not have children of their own yet. And in fact, when God comes back to Abraham in Genesis 15, God comes back to him and he, re- he reminds Abraham and Sarah of this vision. Uh, I, I imagine that like the cynicism has kind of started to set in a little bit. Um, Abraham and Sarah remind me a little bit of like Carl and Ellie from Up. Um, you remember the, the scene where uh, they kind of recount their entire life together. And it's such a beautiful scene. It's kind of excruciating because as you're watching it, you realize one, you're in love with this couple. Um, everyone wants to be this couple, this like cartoon couple or whatever. And also you watch them like, like, like prepare for dreams that they'll never actually attain or, or save for adventures that they'll never actually get to take or, or plan for like the child that they will never be able to welcome into their home. It's beautiful and it's excruciating to watch because we've either been there or we know someone who's been there or we are there, we know someone who is there. Um, we, we've all kind of experienced that, that not being able to attain the thing that we're setting out for, the hopes and the dreams and the adventures that we wanted for ourselves. Like Carl and Ellie, Abraham and Sarah dream of having a home somewhere. They long for children of their own. And so you can almost feel the hot anger in Abraham and Sarah, in Abraham's voice as God reminds him of this promise to grant them children and grant them land. And Abraham says back to God, I remember, do not have children. And it's because of that, apparently my servant Eliezer will have to inherit all of my possessions. And it's at that point that God clarifies his promise to them that he will give birth, that he and Sarah will give birth to a son who will be the first inkling of God's promise to not just bring them into a land of their own, but to also bless the world through them. So God makes a promise to Abraham and Sarah, and they do, in fact, give birth to a son. His name is Isaac. Uh, But then something interesting happens that I I gloss over because I'm so familiar with the story, but the reality is um, Abraham and Sarah do get to hold Isaac, and they get to raise him, um, but Abraham and Sarah actually die as nomads. They die as nomads, and they are buried in tombs that they purchase from the Hittites, And then the story just kind of goes on. Now, eventually, the promise is fulfilled. Their family continues to grow and to grow and to grow, and they become a really large nation. And eventually, God does lead their family centuries later, centuries later, into the land that God shows them. Uh, But eventually, though, because they are a nation and not just simply a large family, they need a king. And so this is where we get to King David. He's in the second stanza of, our, um, of, our, of our, our text for today. David is the second king of Israel. The first king was Saul. That didn't go so well. Uh, and so David comes in as king. Uh, but David's story is also kind of interesting. It helps us to understand quite a bit, quite a bit. Um, in fact, the second stanza actually helps us to understand a lot, a whole lot of what Matthew is doing in his gospel. So Matthew begins telling us that David is... Um, 
the king. Um, David is um, not just um, the king, but he is also the one that Jesus is descended from. Uh, and then we learn, if you remember the, the stories from the Old Testament, uh, David is the son of Jesse. And when Samuel realizes that he has to anoint a new king, God sends him to Jesse's house uh, to anoint a king from Jesse's son, sons. And Samuel has no idea which of the sons it is. Actually, Jesse calls the sons and, and all seven of them parade before Samuel and Samuel gets kind of frustrated because he's like, God keeps saying, it's not any of these seven. It's not any of these seven. Like, are you keeping other kids in the back? Like, what's going on? And then eventually, eventually they realize that it's actually David who's been out keeping sheep. Uh, David, who was so, who's not only small, but also so insignificant that when literally like the secretary of state shows up at Jesse's house saying, I want to annoy one of your kids is king. They don't even send for him. He's just out keeping the sheep. Um, and so eventually they send for David and God tells Samuel, this is the one. This is the next king of Israel. And they anoint um, David. They anoint him as king. But as it turns out, uh, David has some pretty good qualities that make for a good king. Uh, David is a trustworthy shepherd of his father's flock. In fact, when the secretary of state shows up with his motorcade to anoint the next king and all seven of his brothers run into the house to be potentially chosen as king, David's FOMO doesn't even kick in. He just like stays out with the sheep. Nobody sends for him, but David also doesn't go either. He's trustworthy with the sheep. Uh, David is also, as we learn, he eventually in reading his story, uh, David plays instruments. Um, David writes these beautiful songs and prayers to God. Uh, our Old Testament, is our, our Psalms are full of Psalms of David, prayers of David. Uh, and we also learn as, as David's story unfolds that he's really great with a slingshot. He's basically like, Rambo, like in like the ancient world. Uh, so David, David actually ends up going down as one of the, actually, sorry, not one of, the best king of Israel, uh, the best king of Israel. Robert Sherman uh, is a, a theologian that I was reading recently, uh, and he writes a book called um, King, Priest, and Prophet. Um, and I, I should say I strategically read it, which is college speak for I skimmed it, but it's a really, really good book. Uh, and uh, one of the things that he talks about is what makes for a really good king in Israel. Uh, and he kind of lists these things that you see in the life of the kings, both things that they are condemned for, things that they're commended for. Um, and he names like three primary things, but they all revolve around this one word, uh, guardian. A king or a monarch in general was supposed to be a guardian. Uh, a guardian, um, someone who protected from both external and internal threats. Uh, a guardian, someone who guarded faithful worship of the people. Uh, and, and someone who recognized their role as a vice regent. Like you are anointed and appointed by God himself. Uh, you are a vice regent. God is actually the king. And this is precisely what we see in David. In David, we see someone who exercises strategic, political, and military leadership. Uh, we see someone who guards and protects the worship of Yahweh. Uh, we also see someone who's a, David is described as a man after God's own heart. Uh, he doesn't just obey God. I mean, the Psalms show us that David doesn't just obey God. He loves God. He loves God, and he models that for the people. David is so zealous for the peace of the kingdom, um, both, both geopolitically, but also spiritually. He's so zealous for it that he actually wants to build a temple and if you remember the story, you remember that he hears the word of the Lord from the prophet, prophet Nathan, that he is not to build a temple. Uh, David only really gets to prepare for the building of the temple, but it's his son who builds the temple. 
Solomon gets to build the temple. But in the process of telling David, no, that he can't build a temple, God then makes a promise to David. And this is the second, important, second most important promise that you read in the Old Testament scriptures, and it shapes what Matthew is doing uh, in his gospel. Um, Nathan speaking the voice of God, says to David that he will always have a successor on the throne, that God will establish his throne forever. There will always be someone from the line of David or from the family of David sitting on the throne. And sure enough, when he dies, Solomon is anointed the king of Israel. Uh, now, if David is known as like kind of like the faithful warrior king, like the Rambo of, of the ancient world, uh, Solomon is known for his wealth and his wisdom. Um, and as we learn in 1 Kings 11, Solomon is less known for the fact that he did, um, according to the scripture, so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. But not just Solomon, um, his son Rehoboam also does evil in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and also after him, um, Abijam um, does evil in the, um, uh, he is nothing like David, uh, but God is faithful to him for God's sake. Um, as Matthew traces through, I'm not gonna go through all of these, but he traces through the names of something like 10 or 12 people, uh, 10, maybe 14 exactly, people from David, um, all of them kings in the line of David, and they all fail, they all fail, for one of three reasons, one of three reasons, or maybe all three, they either fail in their strategic leadership of the kingdom, like actually being king, or they fail in their character, they fail in their character, or or they fail to guard the worship of, of the people. And there's a couple of kings who, like it's almost ambivalent, like they set out, um, let's see if I can find one, uh, Uzziah or Ozaria, we read about him in 2 Kings 15, um, if we can go to that slide, he does what's right in the eyes of the Lord. Like he's actually like personally faithful. He probably does his morning devotionals over coffee. Um, and yet he fails to intervene when the people are slipping into idolatry. Multiple kings fail to intervene when the people are slipping into idolatry. Um, so they all fail for one, maybe all three of those reasons until we get to the very last king of Israel, which is Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim not only does what's evil in the eyes of the Lord, but he makes several poor decisions that ultimately lead to the exile. Uh, the Babylonians warn um, God's people, do not conspire with Egypt because Egypt is our enemy and God's people decide, we're, foolishly decide, we're gonna conspire with Egypt and see how it turns out. As it turns out, the Babylonians don't like it. They literally swoop in and this is the point where they carry God's people off into exile and they destroy the temple. There's something like 20 monarchs in Judah's history um, after the kingdom splits under Rehoboam and only four of them, only four of them are considered good kings who are worthy of being compared to Rehoboam or worthy of being compared to David. Uh, most of them fail because of gaps, tremendous gaps in their leadership. And then you have to wonder, I mean, this is the point essentially where the royal dynasty of David's line effectively ends. And so you're kind of left with a cliffhanger of like, is God not going to keep his promise? And it's a cliffhanger for the God's people because for 600 years, they're wondering, is God not going to keep his promise? Is God going to let the royal dynasty of David die forever, just get completely snuffed out? 
And yet, there's a promise through the prophet Isaiah, we read about in Isaiah 11, uh, where God actually says, through the prophet Isaiah, uh, there's gonna come a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and that, that branch will bear fruit. Uh, it goes on for an entire chapter. It's very, very beautiful. It's one of the texts that we, we, we've actually paid a ton of attention to, theologians have paid a ton, a ton of attention to, uh, because it essentially says that from the line of David will come a Messiah, who will set the captives free, who will return the exiles to their land, who will secure peace once again. Um, and my guess, my guess is that it's because Matthew reads this prophecy over and over and over again that he decides to keep chronicling, to keep chronicling the line of David. So that third stanza or that third set of verses of the genealogy, those aren't kings anymore. Those are just people who are continuing to be born in the family line of David. Somehow they've, they've kept track of them. Somehow Matthew has figured out who they are all the way to you get to the point of Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary, who are the parents of Jesus. And it's at this, at this point that Matthew unfolds what would have been kind of incredible news to, to the first century Jewish Christians that he's writing to, that Jesus Christ is the actual son of David. But not just the son of David, there's tons of sons of David, and the scriptures are full of stories of how terrible they were as leaders, how terrible they were as kings, how terrible they were as followers of Yahweh. Scripture is full of those stories. Jesus is not just a son of Yahweh, he is also, he is also the rightful king. He is also the righteous king. He's the just king. He's the one who secures peace. He's the one who guards their devotion to God. He's the one who fights to show what true love of God actually looks like. And Matthew wants to make it abundantly clear at the beginning of his account of Jesus' life that their identity as first century Jewish Christians who are basically nomads with no temple and no home and no geopolitical center anymore, that their identity is not in the ruins and the rubble of the temple, but in the faithful warrior king from the line of David who died, rose again, and in doing so, conquered death. But there's a third thing that stands out in our text. Um, a third thing that, that sticks out in our minds that I wanna leave us with for today. Um, if you look at the very first stanza of Matthew 1, if we could scroll up one more slide. Okay, two more slides. So eventually, there are some people there who kind of stand out uh, because ordinarily they wouldn't be there. Uh, what do all those people have in common? Yeah. They're women. Uh, that is one of the things that stands out. Women don't usually appear in genealogies. Um, usually genealogies are tracked through the lineage of the, the husband or the father. Uh, but that's not exactly the, the total reason why they're included. Uh, there's something else that's really unique about them. Most of them are associated with sexual scandal of some sort. Um, Tamar was the, uh, we read about her in Genesis, I believe, 38. Uh, she is the daughter-in-law of Judah who becomes the mother of two of Judah's sons. Um, very interesting story of how that happens. Uh, essentially, she marries one of his sons. The son dies. She marries a second son. Um, that son is um, smited or smitten or smote by God. Very hard word to conjugate. Um, and eventually... 
Judah decides that she is killing his sons. And so he banishes her to her father's home. Um, and then he says to her, hey, like I have this super young son. He's like eight. You know, when he grows up, you can marry him and then you'll be able to have children with him. And Tamar figures out what's happening. She then presents herself as a prostitute. And when he comes to town, she deceives him into conceiving a child with her and then reveals that it is in fact her. And then they go on to have another kid together. So Tamar, and then Rahab, who is an actual prostitute, we meet her in Joshua 2. She is the one who hides the spies of Joshua's men so that they can then spy out the land, Jericho, that they are about to go in to take. Ruth, we read about Ruth um, in the story of Ruth. Um, Ruth marries a guy named Boaz, uh, and you can listen to and watch that story on the Hallmark Channel every night of the week. Um, And then there's Bathsheba. Uh, Bathsheba is known as the wife of Uriah, um, and she also has a little bit of of an interesting story. Uh, Bathsheba is um, the wife of another person, and King David decides that he wants to meet her. Um, And so eventually she gets pregnant and David decides to kill her husband to cover it up. And then because her husband is basically like his general, um, he gets to pretend to be the good person, the noble person who to pay his debt of gratitude to his best general marries his wife who's now pregnant with his own child. Um, So it kind of reads like a reality show slash a a, a soap opera. Um, Nonetheless, like this is, these are literally the stories that are kind of etched onto the beginning of Matthew uh, in the genealogy, prostitution and adultery and murder and lies and assault, literally the worst of humanity on display. Um, and Matthew includes every sordid detail. He's like that uncle who tells stories to guests that he probably shouldn't tell, and you kind of wish he wasn't there when family came, when family got together. Um, that is what Matthew does, and you kind of got to wonder why he does it. Um, and I think it's largely because this is Matthew's story too. Matthew, when we encounter him months from now, we'll get to a story. Matthew is a tax collector. Um, He is also a nomad, socially, religiously, like no one, his family, the friends he grew up with, no one will have anything to do with him except other tax collectors and other sinners, um, people who are the worst of the worst of society are the only people who will gather with Matthew. And it's that Matthew that Jesus actually calls to be one of his original 12 disciples. I think Matthew tells the story of people like Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba in particular, etches them into the genealogy of Jesus because he wants God's people to to realize that that everyone, everyone gets folded into the story and not even the worst of the worst of the worst of the stories are shocking to God. I think Matthew includes those people in his story of what Jesus is doing because he realizes that that's the reason, like that is the reason why Jesus is not completely and utterly repulsed by him. Because Jesus is a descendant not just of kings like David, but also liars and adulterers like David, prostitutes like Rahab. Jesus is a descendant of both of them. But there's a third thing, a third thing that stands out about all of these people, um, something that all four of them have in common, not just like three of the four. um, And it's that all of them are not just women, not just associated with sexual scandal. They are all Gentiles. When we meet Tamar, she is from a town named Timnah, which is Philistine territory at that time. When we meet Rahab, she is living just outside of the city of Jericho before it is conquered by God's people. When we meet Ruth, she is a woman from Moab. When we meet Bathsheba, uh, we realize that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She's also 
not a Jew, she's a Gentile. Matthew wants this group of people to know that it is not just this add-on, like the, the Gentiles are not this add-on to, um, to the work that God wants to do. The Gentiles have been a part of the story all along, going all the way back to the first promise of God to Abraham and Sarah, and moving throughout literally the lineage of King David, like his grandmother, I mean, we're literally talking about King David's grandmother, um, moving throughout all of that story until you get to Jesus Christ himself, who literally his blood includes the blood of Gentiles. For Matthew, what this reveals is that these seemingly random inclusions mean basically that there is like no barrier, not social, not moral, not, not, not ethnic, not political, not geographical. There is no barrier that God will not cross to redeem and restore his people. These two promises that God makes to um, Abraham and Sarah and then another to King David, these two promises are woven into the fabric of the story that Matthew tells throughout his gospel. And they are good news. Like the fact that God fulfills both of those promises, even though it takes centuries for it to happen, it's good news for a group of first century Christians who literally feel like nomads in a land that has completely spit them out. And it's also good news to us. As Matthew tells them to to create space for the God who created space for them, now they're creating space for a group of Gentiles who are discovering the good news for themselves. Um, I think Matthew also says to us that the message of Christmas is this God who creates space for us and then sends us in his name to make space for other people, to communicate this message that nothing and no one gets the last word, no experience, no past experience, no form of abuse, no, no brokenness in the family line, nothing, the isolation of, of, of being people in our world, like none of that, destruction of temples, emperors who and rulers who don't like particular groups or sects, none of that gets the last word on who we are and who we belong to, only Christ. And that is good news for the first century world and it's good news for ours. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for always, always working and devising ways to bring back people who are far off from you people who have been banished, people who have fallen into sin and shame and guilt and and just are mired in captivity. Thank you for the story that we get to celebrate this season, the story that we get to welcome this season, and the story that we get to live um, in all seasons and proclaim in all seasons. As in the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. As always, we're grateful that you would spend a little time with us. For more information about South Harbor Church, joining our community, or any of the things you hear on the podcast, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church, and on Sunday mornings at 10, you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page, which, if you're not on social media, does not require a login to view. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.